Hey everyone, welcome back to What Would The Smart Party Do? Coming up soon, we've got our main topic of tonight. We're going to be talking about pedagogy. Don't run away, it's not as filthy as it sounds. <laughs> we'll explain all in just a few minutes. But first, guys, what is best in gaming? How's it going over there? Yeah, all right. Not Tamagotchis. I thought that's what you were talking about originally there. But no. That's... Tamagotchis? Is that what you said? Oh, well. Well, I know we like the 90s, but there will only be, surely... A few of the smart posse who understand what a Tamagotchi is. <laughs> this sounds like it needs an episode. This will become a thing. It'll become a meme or something. The kids will start talking about Tamagotchis again. Is it role playing? Can you use it as a resolution mechanic? Well, that's interesting. Maybe. Maybe a long game. Um, yeah, but talk, talk to the 90s and such. Warhammer Fantasy role plays back. Yes. Which is good. So, yes, I've, um, I've picked it up. I ran it for um, some of the extended smart party a couple of weekends ago. And they all liked it, especially that track that's got weapon skill, ballistic skill, strength, toughness, that little um, attribute, you know, uh, carriage that you have. The, Profile. Yeah, that's mm. it. They just saw that and went, oh, yeah, Warhammer. And you got the old nostalgia flooding back. I think they've done a job that's quite good. So it's kind of got the first edition old world feel to it still, and that kind of nostalgia mm. I'm talking about. But for the newer kids, it's also got some new world sensibilities. So... Um, they do stuff like combat suppose now, so there's now having really low skills and whiffing for ages and combats last forever because you can't hit anyone. And if you do, they dodge. Now there's like nice. someone gets hit every round and that kind of stuff. Uh, and they've nicked a couple of bits from Blades in the Dark or done a similar thing. So you've got downtime actions when you're not on adventures and when you're doing things with your career and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I've not read it completely thoroughly top to bottom because the, the new final PDF has only just come out. But enjoying that so far. There's a, there's a weird kind of coincidence there. So you've picked up... Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 4th edition I think it is yep, yes. yep. Um, and at exactly the same time I've been immersing myself in 1st edition Warhammer <laughs> Fantasy Roleplay because clearly cutting edge stuff um, because Cubicle 7 who've got the license of doing the game that you played they have also re-released some of the really old stuff on PDF yeah. so if you've got really dog-eared copies of stuff like Middenheim City of Chaos or Marienburg Sold Down the River um, they're available now at, at a pretty good price and they're good scans as well and I've been immersing myself back in the first edition rule book because we're going to do a bit of sort of cross-casting with some other people about that I think coming up pretty soon yeah nice it's it's probably worth checking out stuff from Gen Con if people haven't done that yet we've alluded to a few mm. things but um, Graham Davis who's been heavily involved in all the Warhammers he did a couple of uh, talks while he was over there and one goes into great length about uh, where names came from and ideas for things and all that kind of stuff and goes through all the editions so far so it's well worth uh, digging about on YouTube for that I might see if I can find it for the show notes later but yeah quite a few things came out from uh, Gen Con and such cool I think we'll probably have a dig around in Warhammer in a future episode I would imagine wouldn't you I think so definitely okay. another interesting thing I just saw today as well is Savage Worlds a favourite of the show that's mm. uh, being kickstarted again is it? yeah so I, I've got mixed feelings about this so a new edition fine it's going to be backwards compatible as all the new editions of Savage Worlds have been so they'll just release yeah. some notes on their website to say what's changed kind of thing but I don't know why Pinnacle need to kickstarter it surely like this is something they should have enough money in the bank to just produce I would have thought but uh, well apparently not that seems to be their business model anyway so there'll be a new edition of Savage Worlds well, yeah. and they've done stuff with it apparently so some of the core rules have changed it's not just monkeying around with the chase mechanics some bits and pieces the way tricks and taunts have changed apparently so I don't know it might be good I don't think there's much wrong with it now so I'm, I'm curious to see what happens yeah that will be an interesting one 
Um, speaking of Kickstarters, uh, while we've last been on air, the Rain Kickstarter came to a close. Uh, Rain, written by Mr. Greg Stoltze, uh, who's been on the show before, episode 67. If you want to scroll back down through the Smart Party website to find that, that was a good interview. I really enjoyed that one with Greg. And yeah. it's weird that, like, a couple of months down the line, to see his game refunded $88,500 to see Rain's second edition in print, which is tantalizingly close to getting the final stretch goal, which would have been our very own friend of the show's Dr. Mitch would have been writing a supplement for it. Um, but he has put out on social media he's going to write it anyway. He's a, so, he's a good song. Well, well done, Mitch. He's a good boy. <laughs> <laughs> we'll chuck him a couple of dollars for that when that comes around because he's going to he's going to write Ninth Legion, which he's done before for a previous edition of Rain. Um, it's a really good stuff. It's right up your street, isn't it? It's Roman Legionnaires. You love that stuff, don't you? Yeah, yeah, that's all good stuff for me. I've played a couple of his games previously, actually, with that sort of stuff in, and it's um, he knows what he's talking about with all that, so we thoroughly researched and uh, a, a good blast to play, I think, if you like that kind of thing. Mm, cool. Um, and also, while we're here, just before we get to the main topic, just wanted to give a massive shout-out to some guests that we've had on recently. Last couple of shows, we've done some some really cool interviews that we enjoyed, didn't we, with uh, Jonathan Tweet and Satine Phoenix. We've had an amazing amount of feedback from from those episodes, which is really good to hear. Um, if you back us on Patreon you're our mates and we love you and thank you ever so much for carrying on doing that but anybody who bothers to share our show like it put a review on iTunes or just mention it in their feeds as well that's really good because it, it brings more people to the show and there's more people to have the conversation so um, you know, thanks again to Jonathan and to Satine for being really good guests and it's people like that that enable us to get more so we're always looking for more guests so watch this space yeah thanks to uh, James Johnny Arhan who are our new patrons this week it's great to see a little bit of support and it was good to see like you say support for our guests there were some very kind words on the Twitter sphere and the, the face ache and stuff like that of people who tagged in our guests to say how much they enjoyed the interviews and it's not just about us getting a little bit of feedback if they get the nod as well to say uh, they were enjoyable or the, the podcast as a whole is enjoyable it gives them a little boost as well so do feel free to kind of like tag in other people who've spoken to and let them know how much we enjoyed what they said because they are giving up the valuable time to do a bit of a chat with us in their busy days. It's uh, it's all good for everybody, really. Cool. Yeah, thanks, guys. So um, I guess without further ado, mate, uh, we better get on to tonight's main topic. We've got guests waiting in the wings, hopefully, in the wings of the internet. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we'll see you on the other side and uh, on with the show. The Smart Party are raising funds to help with the running costs of the show. We use Patreon, which is kind of like a modern magic item that turns you into a connoisseur of all that is good in gaming. To show your support, just head over to patreon.com slash thesmartparty. You can donate a dollar, a credit, a copper piece, or a fiver per month. It all goes into the portable whole of web hosting costs and helps us look after you every month with new Smart Party content. Patreons get a big thanks from us, some backer-only goodies as and when, and the warm, confident glow of the just and righteous to help you sleep at night. Join the Smart Party at patreon.com today and tell all your friends tomorrow. Cheers! Hey everybody, welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? We're here again, it's me, Baz, and over there is him, Gaz. Hello, mate, how you doing? I'm living a dream, mate. Yeah, I'm great. Although, I have to say, I've been working like a dog for the past six weeks, and you and various other people have had six weeks off being teacher types. It's outrageous. Off. Off, you say? I don't know if it's off. I think it's like reclaiming (laughs) overtime is what you call it. (laughs) I don't know if you call it six weeks off. Um, You allude to our special guests for this evening and the main topic that we're going to cover tonight. Um, we have roped in some really good old friends of the Smart Party. Uh, we have in the red corner, 
uh, we have. He's been on the podcast before, but it was some time ago. We've got Pete. Hello, Pete. Hello. How are you? I'm really good. That voice is going to have to stop. Uh, <laughs> that's not your real voice. Uh, so we've got Pete on, and we've also got another friend of the show who, for some reason, after about 80 episodes, has not been on before. I don't really know how this has happened. All the way from the fan of the East, we've got Neil Gow. Hello, Neil. Morning. Hello. <laughs> Hello, mate. Um, the reason we've got you two old reprobates on is that... Um, well, to cut a long story short, over the last year in real life, I've been training to become a teacher, having had a midlife crisis and a career change. Um, and I'm now all super qualified. And by the time this podcast goes out, I will be standing in front of 30 small children trying to teach them how to do fractions and write words and do science and stuff. So I've moved into a whole new profession over the last year. And you two guys have been in the teaching profession for some time. And I guess, you know, I'll ask you about that in just a sec. But one of the reasons I've got you on is it's it's come to my attention that some of the skills we use in teaching or that I've been trained in in the last year, um, they I'm still waiting for someone to give me a wink and go, it's just like GMing. Because it does <laughs> seem to be, it does seem to be like you have to come up with like an idea for a one shot for every single day of the week and run it for a bunch of people who are of various levels of interest and uh, and it's got to continue being good, otherwise they won't come back anymore. So teaching, role-playing, I'm thinking Venn diagrams, and there's a big old chunk in the middle. So I wanted to get you guys on um, and get Gaz's opinion on this too, to see if there's any lessons we can learn from the world of pedagogy, the science of teaching, um, uh, or whether I'm talking nonsense and you're, you are just as likely to be into RPGing and GMing and, and making games good if you're in, I don't know, IT or work for the NHS or you're a postman or whatever. So, Pete, Neil, tell us a little bit about yourselves and, and, and your teaching and your gaming and whether there's any intersection in those two worlds at all. Have you ever used any skills from one in the other? Yes, probably a lot. Mm. Although now that I've started pinpointing it, I don't know as much. It's not as clear. Um, I think, well, just... Just as a starter for ten or whatever, just being able to manage the room mm-hmm. when you're around the table, especially at a con, where you've got, as you say, lots of people who quite often are strangers or people you don't know that well. Um, being able to manage that room and manage the table, I think there's a lot of crossover skills. Um, as a starter, yeah. I mean, there's probably more as well. What do you reckon, Neil? Yeah, I agree that ability to look at a group of people, read them, see when they're engaged, see when they're beginning to drift, bring them in, react to the individuals and what's going to make them buzz and what's going to make them drift off a little bit, balance that all up, keep it paced, make sure there's no flags in energy. Yeah, the the, the, the overlap's massive, in my opinion, especially at my end of teaching. I teach a lot of adults. Um and and the the way that I teach is very very influenced by the way that I GM. Cool. So one of the uh, one of the things that, that I've been taught over the last year is I don't want to drop much jargon into this, but in the teaching profession, we're taught about a thing called behaviour management. Now, which is basically that it's making sure that everybody's on task and everybody's on point and everything's going in the right direction. And and it seems to be a bit as much art as science. But you never see the terms behaviour management applied to GMing advice. And 
although that's often what it is. And 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 I think behavior management sounds like kind of a grown up term, doesn't it? You know, you, when you read GM advice books or you're looking at any new RPG and it says like this is what to do with, I don't know, problem players or in our world, that might be, a, you know, a student who's acting out. I don't, I don't know. I think perhaps they could learn from each other a little bit here. Um, it's obviously a massively complex, uh, massively complex theory, and, and you need as much experience as you do anything else. But uh, did it, did any GMing advice help you in the classroom? Perhaps I, I think it's actually been the other way around. My teaching advice has helped me um, at the table. Mm. So there's one incident that comes to mind where we're taught to manage silence. So if you ask somebody a question and they're thinking about the answer, mm. you let them have their think. You don't sort of chivvy them along too much. Um, and there have been a number of times when I've been deep in a game of monster hearts and somebody's been given a particularly difficult decision to make. And that idea of letting them think and fully sort of explore the horror before them by letting them explore their silence is something that's um, worked really well. Um, I use it a lot in class. You don't just ask the question, expect an answer. You let people think about the answer and then they come back with it. So when it's around a gaming table, do you let that hang a little bit? I don't know, because probably one of the techniques I've used is when someone's taking too long in inverted commas for my, for my tastes as GM, what I'll often do is say, well, I'll let you think about that and then move on to someone else to get their action or whatever they're doing so I can come back to the person who's thinking. But I guess for something like Monster Hearts, where there might be tension or it's a particularly dramatic moment, do you have to kind of still hold the room non-verbally while giving that player time to think about what they're doing, or do you move on to kind of fill in the time for everybody else as well? Yeah, absolutely. You can't you can't just stand there like a sort of you know empty void, just you know drumming your fingers on the table waiting for something to happen. There has to be some sort of prompts there, but allow people the chance to think. You know, I know you're a big fan of pace, but sometimes there just needs to be that that moment of just stopping and thinking and then moving on. Um, obviously, if everybody falls asleep, you've left it too far. <laughs> yeah. So, and falling asleep doesn't have to be because I teach primary, so down at the other end of the spectrum, I suppose. And um, and and those techniques actually, yeah, we're we're taught exactly that. So, if you ask a question of someone, and often in primary, people throw their hand up, and then you say, "Okay, what's your answer?" and they immediately will say, "I've forgotten," because they just want <laughs> to contribute, and it immediately it's kind of bizarre. Um, but it happens a lot, and and obviously. You don't want massive extended silences in a primary classroom because the other kids will fill it. And if that was around a gaming table, people would probably be a bit more polite being adults usually. But I'm sure we've got gaming tables where if there's a silence and someone's trying to decide on the thing that they want to do to to give the answer to the dilemma you've set them as a GM, if somebody else spoke up and gave them some advice, that's kind of like one of those those situations that happens quite a lot isn't it sometimes it's well-meaning but sometimes it's just cutting across people yeah yeah, and yeah you absolutely put your teacher hat on don't you and go oh no no give them a minute give them because you you do want to come back to people and but obviously sometimes you can forget to do that that's quite a crime i think yeah i think that that idea of having the you know you're seeing coming back to people as well one of the things that i find with with teaching is is holding the room as a so everybody gets their chance to participate. It's one of mm. the things that we have to do. We draw everybody in. And so keeping track, just mentally in your head, who's had their go, who hasn't had their go, who's contributing, who's maybe sitting back. Is that something that they would normally do? Mm. Are they somebody that does sit back and listen rather than actively participate? There's tons of that in gaming as well. Yeah. 
yeah. What about your table, Pete? Do you, do you have like um, silences, quiet people, and you fall back on teaching techniques to bring them out? Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely that way around for me. As Neil said, I, I think you bring more from your classroom to your GM table mm. than vice versa, or at least consciously anyway. I'm trying to think about ways I might have done stuff at a GM table that I could take back to class because I never really thought about that, actually. But that bit about it, it is managing the people around the table but it's not losing sight of the task as well. Yeah. You know, you, when you're doing your lesson, you know you've got an endpoint or you've got several endpoints throughout the, the hour or however long you've seen them for. Um, <laughs> you're thinking, right, what's got to be in place to get everybody to that point? Mm -hmm. And if you take that to your gaming table... And you're thinking, right, I've got to get all the players to this point by, you know, the first 30 minutes because we've got a three and a half hour session. I want to get this, this and this done. So you, you kind of tailor your approach to different people with that end point in sight or that milestone in sight to try and get them there roundabout the right time, uh, roundabout, you know, in the right kind of way. So they all feel they've contributed and not been railroaded. Mm. I think from a teaching point of view, you do that a lot in lessons trying to get the kids to get the, the knowledge, the understanding, the content, or even just to finish the flipping task. Because, yeah. you know, if you're not finishing it, we're in trouble for next time. Um, so that pacing element, I think, is there's a lot of kind of crossover with. Yeah, and and that, the, the tricky kid around the table or the tricky player and the tricky kid in class, you're almost got to be thinking, right, well, how does, how does this person respond how do I get this person to engage and when you know the, when you know your classroom when you know your kids you know there are there are different tricks for different kids mm. but the quicker you can do that at your table I think you get much more buying from your players so you almost or I almost in, initially bombard all the players with a variety a variety of different ways of just getting them into it and then trying to see which one sticks which one they get hold of and then when I need to inject some pace or I need to inject a bit more engagement from them, go mm. back to them and go, well, I remember you like doing that a minute ago, so we'll do that again. So then they get a bit more relaxed and then they start to explore what they actually want to do from a character point of view as opposed to a, a person point of view. That mm. makes sense. Yeah, so, I mean, in, um, in the lessons that was last year when I've been observed, which you get done quite a lot to see how you're getting on, you know, the, the solid advice that I've received is to get a hook into your lesson nice and early it might be something visual might be something auditory just some kind of thing that happens really early on just to get everyone leaning forward a little bit and i'm guessing gaz as the, as the non-teacher in the room that just sounds like good advice for a game right like get something to get people interested really really early on yeah it's some of the, the classic is the immediate rest start isn't it men with guns walking mm -hmm. and you have a fight straight away or something like that so yeah i mean Anything to engage people and a, a bit of a bang to start with is good for a game. Uh, what I'm probably interested in a little bit as well is one of the things I've been doing more recently uh, to a greater extent is with characters preloading them with stuff. So there's things on the character sheet for people to either mess about with or they think about the other characters around the table or they've got some rumours about what's going on in the city or whatever it might be. But that's so I guess that's a bit like your guys' lesson plans or something, that you put something in in advance so that when you give your materials to the people that you're teaching, they've already got something to have a bit of a go at and know a direction that we're going to go in and they're sort of prepared for it. Is that, does that make sense? Yeah, I'd agree. Definitely, I think. Um, yeah, lesson plans are kind of 
really big deal in your early part of your teaching career. I, I'm, I'm going to guess that you guys don't do lesson plans to the degree that I've had to do them recently, for sure. But um, of course we I've, do. I've had to. Of course we do. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I had. I've, I've been in the stage where I've been spending three hours to plan a one hour lesson, which sounds like is so similar to back in the day when I was running um, D&D adventures and putting, you know, uh, six hours of prep into a three-hour game. It's an even worse ratio. Uh, Yeah. Um, And lesson plans, plans, to me, look a little bit like my gaming notes. (laughs) They do have, like, you know, a bit of a bang at the start. And they have, like you know, they have some little milestones that go through it to your point, Pete, about, you know, you want to get people to a resolution at a certain time. Certainly in a con game, that's a really that's a really big thing. Um, And in lessons, you've got slightly less time to do it in and you've got an awful lot of players. But the skills are really, really transferable. And it's been it's been quite interesting to learn how to how to put down on paper what you need to do your lesson with, which is the difference between grabbing something off of uh off of the internet a lesson plan that already exists which is a bit like buying a published adventure i suppose or maybe your lesson plan has for one reason or another it's got to be reasonably improvised on the day um and you know that that sort of smacks of some gming sessions as well and finding you know finding the path that works for you depending on what you want to get out of the lesson having to put that amount of thought into how you prepare for your lesson and or your game has been really valuable for me because in gaming i just used to treat every game the same just write my notes for me sometimes the games worked sometimes they didn't but actually planning something for your audience which is what teaching has taught me has made my gaming better so far well i mean without getting into the sort of the you know the scary theory of teaching we talk about differentiation a lot we talk tailoring the the lesson to people and their interests and their needs and if you think about your gaming group the more you get to know your gaming group, the more you get to know what they like, what they don't like, and you can tailor your game to the way that they like to play. And similarly at a con, you know, you might sit down around the table, you've got maybe five players in front of you, two people who you know, one person who you sort of know, and two who are completely new to you. Mm-hmm. And one of the skills is is catching up quickly on, okay, what what fi- I know I know you and I know you, but what fires you three? What's going to get you going? Um, and that that's a very teacher thing. Yeah, especially if you're not doing it in a class, if you're doing sort of training and you've got to go out and meet new people all the time and train them. That ability to appraise people very quickly as to what's going to interest them is a very transferable skill between gaming, especially con gaming and teaching. Mm. Yeah, so. The stuff that, that I've been picking up is the, the bits that, that nobody's nobody nobody's any appreciation for, me included, because we've all been to school and we've all been taught by people and we've well, the listeners to this podcast have all been in games with various GMs. They might know them, they might not. But there's a bunch of stuff going on behind the scenes. Differentiation is one, which is as Neil said, it's like putting together um, scaffolded approaches for some people. What are you going to do with the people who really get it quickly? What are you going to do with the people who are going to take some time over it? And um, and I don't think I've ever differentiated a, a role-playing session before, and I probably should, because certainly in a con, you sometimes get the player who basically says nothing for the three and a half hours you're sitting there. And you've got no idea whether they're enjoying it or not. And sometimes at the end, they shake you by the hand and go, what a great game, and other times they don't. And I think if my con games have ever fallen flat, it's because I've not made allowances, not differentiated for the different types of people that might be there. 
Sometimes it's too pacey. Sometimes it's not enough. And that's where assessment comes, isn't it? So you, you kind of got to read the room and you've got a bit of spend, a, spend a bit of time listening to how they're acting. And, you know, in a gaming situation, that's like, you know, give them some choices and listen to how those choices are made. Just not just what the answer is, but how they've gone about doing it. And then start playing along that thread. Does that ring any bells? Is, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I was thinking as well when you were talking there as well about um, putting breaks in. Well, I thought I thought about in teaching, we get a lot of feedback from the kids, mm. and I thought actually we don't really get much feedback from a con, and it's better now with social media because people post their reviews and stuff, and they sort of do quite often post a proper review um, and give you marks almost, but. Uh, yeah, no names. Um, <laughs> but the the other thing as well is it used to be you'd play your con scenario and you'd, you'd play your session and at the end you'd go, all right, thanks very much, GM. And then you'd all go your separate ways and you'd go, oh my God, that game was terrible. Or my God, that game was brilliant. Whereas now, and I think there's more of a, a culture of, and I don't know if it's coincidental or planned, but you have these kind of people tend to GMs, I think GMs put more breaks in a session now. Mm. They might be because we're older and we need to go to loo more often. But, <laughs> um, but what that does is it gives you a kind of informal way of getting a bit of feedback, potentially, or at least checking with your players once you're out of that kind of playing environment to just go, actually, is everything all right? Or do we need to change this? Or are you enjoying it or what? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I never used to want to put breaks in my game sessions because I always thought, what do you want a break for? I want to get on with it. But now I think, actually, breaks are good because it gives you a bit of headspace. It gives the, the players a bit of headspace and then gives you that opportunity for a little bit of feedback, which in a, from a teacher point of view in lessons, you try and get loads of feedback from the kids all the time because then you quickly, you know, it's that kind of um, loop where they give you a bit of feedback, you change what you're doing, you give a bit of feedback, you change what you're doing, that kind of thing. And the breaks is one mechanism for helping you incorporate that into your concessions. And do you find as teachers, because like the certain social behaviours that are driven at cons by it, people tend to look at the gym, for example, as in charge. So things like going for breaks, or whatever else, like people don't want to spoil the game or whatever, you know, or have a certain like confidence thing about it. So they like wait for the gym to say it before they'll say, can I go for a wee, please? Which is a little bit like probably more to like Baz's level than. Neil's level would suspect, but I don't know. So do, do you find uh, there's a bit of a confidence thing to being a lecturer or a teacher that you get that that helps out with that? Because I think just generally players tend to look at the GM as in charge for whatever reason of the, the social situation, not just the game. And do, do you feel that's true in gaming as well? Or is that just a, an old construct that's kind of been broken down a little bit recently? I don't know. Mm. I probably agree, I think. I uh, think... Um, Back in the day when I was at school, like, you know, a good 40 years ago, the the sort of analogy or, or the correlation, I suppose, I'm trying to look for here is if a supply teacher came in, you mm-hmm. size them up in the first five minutes. And you would you would pretty readily be able to tell as a, as a as a pack without even talking to your mates in the rest of the class, you would know whether this person was going to be a pushover or you would have to, like, watch yourself because they were essentially strict. Now. You do do the same thing when you go to a con. If you're sitting down, you've got a couple of mates with you as well. That first five minutes, there's a whole lot of sizing up going on. It's in both directions, which is something you learn from teaching as well. And I think you can spot a weak GM. 
and that's really a loaded phrase and I, and I I immediately regret saying it but what I mean by that is someone who who isn't in command of game or the in command of their session I don't mean they're in charge like this is the way we're playing there's no other way of doing it but I just mean someone who's who's got you know who has mastered their brief do you know what I mean by that but you can go to some con games and you you sit down with some expectation and within five minutes you know that actually you're going to have to bring all of the entertainment to this yourself there's not going to be much in the way of support or scaffolding or or much else at all really to do apart from what you bring and you kind of and, and honestly, with some GMs, you think, that, well, I don't know why you were there. We were fine without you. Um, so there's that element of, of sitting down and not saying I'm in charge, but just taking command of the situation because people do look for leadership in social Yeah, situations. absolutely. Absolutely. That idea of being able to, you know, walk into a lecture theatre and have 40, 50, 100 people there and you holding their attention for an hour and mm. keeping them engaged and having the presence to be able to do that is transferable to being in a, you know, God help you, and table two in the dungeon at the garrison <laughs> with <laughs> one game on the left of you, one game on the right of you, the acoustics from hell, and you've got to hold a table for three hours. And it requires you to take, you know, to be, to have the presence to be there and presence and hold people in a lot of the stuff that we do about voice tricks as teachers um work like that as well so when you can project your voice or speak quietly um in order to calm people down or to get people excited about what you're doing work perfectly well in those situations as well as a way to to hold and maintain that hold when you need to have that hold on the table but then there's also when you've got to let go of that hold and you've got to say to people no no it's now we turn it over to you it's up to you. Now you give me input. You tell me what you think. We do that in teaching and we do that in gaming all the time. But mm. then being able to take that back again and have that understanding with the players and with your, the, the people that you, you're teaching, that this is a dialogue. And sometimes I'm talking and sometimes you're talking. And as long as we can do that at the right time, everything's cool. Guys, I wanted to ask, have you ever deliberately pulled role-playing games in any form at all into lessons or lectures that you've given how much of an impact does it make overtly in what you've done all the time wow wow i teach business (laughs) (laughs) do you play Shadowrun then (laughs) i teach business so i use the models of um small indie press you know publishers as an idea of how to do small businesses and explain about supply chain and predicting market changes and thinking about problems and planning projects. And it works because I'm talking from my own experience. So I can give them detailed examples of what's gone on. um, And they love that real world idea, the idea they can go onto a website and look at my stuff and I'm actually doing it for real. And then I'm coming and talking about it in class. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Have you ever got D20s out? Any lessons, mate? Well, D20s, not really. A couple of D12s sometimes, just to see if it breaks a curse. But um, <laughs> And it doesn't. No, of course not. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, I'm, I teach maths, so, you know, numerically, you can, you can shoehorn whatever you want into it. But in all fairness, I don't really think much, if anything, of what I've done as a teacher 
has had much overlap with games per se. Really? Uh, yeah. I'm, I keep it quite well hidden because you still get stoned and stuff and, and you know, excommunicated and things like that when you find out you play Dungeons and Dragons. So, yeah, I keep it quite quite tight and rein on it. I mean, if I see some random kids with a, and it's usually a Dungeon Masters guys, then mm. that's it. It's a fair game. Open season, you know, I chastise them and tell them to play a better game and then remember to pat them on the back for actually playing a role-playing game. That kind of thing. <laughs> um, well, that's probably where it ends at work for me, really. Mm. Um, or in lessons, anyway. Okay. Yeah, it may be for me, I mean, a primary, because I have to teach all of the subjects to primary school kids from... And and there's plenty of opportunities to do it. And I've, I tried it in the last year, and I've run a couple of actual role-playing sessions with 30 players in the room, <laughs> all age nine. Um, it, it went it went remarkably well, you know, and my, my mentor was very good for letting me have a go at this sort of thing. And role-play and drama um, means something else in education to what we would call it. But it's not that far removed, honestly. It's not at all. We, we are constantly setting them up to be like, you know, Viking advisors, um, to some of the first kings of England uh, and we're putting them through you know what's it like to be one of Henry VIII's wives and, and that kind of stuff and apart from the polyhedral dice there is not much between those and uh, and certainly a freeform role-playing session that you would see at a con or a LARP or what have you and given that they're all sitting down at tables with pencils in their hands and bits of paper in front of them it often looks like a massive gaming session <laughs> so I did have a crack at it and I, and I had them all playing you know in a science fiction universe so science fiction is something i've never really been able to get off the ground with adults but funnily enough eight-year-olds are really really good at it and i have no trouble at all flying around in spaceships and being heroic um and it actually went pretty well and i don't think they know that they were playing a role-playing game but they knew that they were having fun they knew that they were pretending to be other people and they were making choices that that ended up delivering a story and it, it, it went pretty well actually i have to say and i'll probably do it again I've done sort of a bit of industrial relations, conflict management, all that kind of stuff. Mm. And we had one that was um power company, surprisingly. Not at all related to the fact I work for a big six energy company, but this imaginary power company. And they got some clones that would work in the, the like the nuclear power plant. And you know, after a certain number of years, you could just like put them in the bin. Or you could say, I work for this many years and then you let them retire and you have to look after them and stuff, or you do whatever. And it was like a really interesting exercise in terms of I was getting quite into it because I'm a role player. And everybody else was like, oh, well, just like robots. I've been in. I was like, no, but they're real. They're, they're biological. They're like living things. It's like, no, no, it doesn't matter, does it? And the, I found it interesting that being a role player meant I could sympathize with the situation and think about it from multiple angles. Whereas the mm. problem a lot of other people seem to be having was reading the material and comprehending it and then coming back with what they might do. I think possibly with your kids, you get a skill and stuff like that they'd be a lot quicker to jump in with a bit of imagination to think about, well, what would we do here if I was in this situation? And I don't know what they find as they get older, that they get more towards adults or whatever, that they think they stop, the empathy stops a little bit or something, or perhaps they're not quite as interested in the imagination aspect and more just interested in getting to a solution or giving the right answer or something like that, maybe. No, I've, um, I've used quite a few games to teach different aspects of business. Um, I've done a sort of negotiation leadership game where it was uh, four different world powers bartering off different um, chips. So it was energy, arms, intelligence, 
something else. I can't remember what it was. Uh, but each of them had like a wild card. They could play a special power. So if they were the US, they could uh, could for five minutes lock another nation down with military if they so wanted um, that they could do once. Um, and they had weaknesses as well. So the, the Russians could never travel. They could never go to another country's table um, by themselves in case one of they tried to... Um, try to what's it called defect um and after three quarters of an hour what started off as quite a, oh god we've got to do this like um turned into a very heated very complicated set of negotiations in character that was it was quite difficult for me to bring to a, a stop in the end and every <laughs> single time they cheat oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Every yeah. single time they try and copy Ashi Maria. That's true as well. I mean, the, the role playing games that I've put in at, at my level with the with the year fours and fives, they're just they're they're trying to squeeze every ounce out of that. Pete, is there is there any in maths where you're you're having to give out scenarios to people and saying, you know, what would you do? In, I, I guess it's mostly strategizing. At your kind of subject matter, is it? There's definitely a, a problem-solving element to it. Mm. So that, especially more recently, sort of in the last couple of years, from a, a GCSE point of view, without boring everyone with GCSE math specifications and whatever else, there's been a lot of shift to from sorry, can you do the sum mm. to can you use the sum? Yeah. So now you get paragraph-style questions where you know uh, Baz is buying. Uh, expensive dice at Gen Con. He's got this much cash. Um, which dice should he buy and how many of each? Mm. And these are the descriptions of all the dice. Or which one do you go for? Uh, and how do you prove your answer? Or something like you get a lot more of that where you've got to get the kids looking at different different possibilities um, and then seeing how they can apply some sort as evidence to prove to you know to to, to prove their decision. It's the best one for the right. Yeah. Um, it's quite often a, a right wrong one as well. So you don't have much scope for discussion beyond a certain point. You know, you've got you've got much more fixed parameters than you'd get in a in a kind of a, a PSE lesson, a personal social education lesson, where you're discussing discussing real life situations, real life um, traumas or dramas and things. Mm. Um, but you get a little bit of that, and that problem solving aspect, that evaluating my choices and picking one that I'm most suitable with, I think has got a bit of crossover with games. It's, it's not as explicit as, as it might be in other areas, but that skill set, and from my point of view, being able to, to present a situation where you've got two or three possible outcomes is mm. better from a game point of view than just giving them one outcome yeah. and forcing them down the road to do it. So there's a little bit of that, but as I say, with, with GCC maths, it's a little bit more constrictive. Uh, you've more, got more constrictions. Uh, constrictions, I can't remember words now. <laughs> restrictions. Restraints, restrictions, not constructions. <laughs> I do see it in primary though, mate. I mean, you know, we have, we do maths obviously at a much sort of lower functional level than at GCSE, but there's a huge amount of, well, multi-step problems as well. So you've got to solve part one before you can move on to part two, before you can solve part three. And it may not even be obvious that there are three parts to the problem. 
And it's about picking the tools that you use to get through the problem. Might be, you know, pick the operation. Is this addition that you need to do here? Are these factor pairs that you need to do here? And and the, the scenario, and they are scenarios that you're given as well. They're often dressed up like you play with some real life stuff. Like, you know, there is a well and there is a ladder hanging down it. And at the bottom of the well is this much water. And you look at some of those. And, and if you've got the wiring in the brain that I have, you look at that and think, that's a D&D trap. And you've just asked a bunch of people how they're going to overcome it using their skills and the knowledges that they've got on their character sheet, which is like their maths book. So, you know, maths problems. I mean, I was going to ask Gaz at this point, you, I'm sure, probably told your parents how educational role-playing games were when you first picked them up. And that's how you justified <laughs> so much time on them. Is, is, is there any truth in the saying that, like, you know, being good at role-playing game makes you better at English and maths and stuff? Undoubtedly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly, like, there's the obvious basic arithmetic for all the dice rolling, adding numbers up and modifiers and trying to min-match your character and that kind of stuff. But just the amount of reading and comprehension, you like I was mm. saying, annihilated at school before anybody knew, like, a word with that many letters in it. But <laughs> yeah, I knew it because there yeah. was a spell <laughs> that could annihilate someone. <laughs> yeah. and it said they would be annihilated. And I had to look what annihilated mean in the dictionary to find out. But you just do a lot more of that kind of stuff and use bigger words and more varied and perhaps for sometimes quite esoteric or niche things. But it does give you, um, if you're interested in any type of thing, if you were interested in trains or something, though, there's perhaps a limited amount of stuff that you can learn and your vocabulary is going to be put down one little little niche that's even more than looking at D&D or other games and stuff with lots of different imaginary worlds and that kind of thing so I think if you've got the curiosity and you want to speak to other people and you've got to share ideas and you want to beat someone else to make a better character and there's, there's all those kind of aspects and there's loads of stuff about it that gets you just gets you skilled up because you're doing you're basically doing extra homework without realizing it mm. is that right I don't know what do you guys think I mean when I was a kid as you lot know and always mock me about it um, I never read, read books. I don't really, still don't really read novels. But I read a shed lot of role-playing games. So for me, it was as kind of a, thankfully, a suitable substitute for my lack of reading normal books to get my vocabulary, improve my vocabulary. And as you can see, I'm <laughs> it's <quite> well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a, it was a thing, you know. For me, that was my reading. And that was my um, introduction into artwork and drawing because I, I used to do a bit of drawing at school and I did art GCSE and those kind of things. And I got quite into that side of things. But that was mainly because I liked the boxes of um, basic D&D. Was it Elmore, mm-hmm. I think? Or the yeah. kind of dragon pictures. They were great. And all the books were per- perforated with those all the way through. And it was kind of like, this is quite cool. I'd love to be able to draw like that and that kind of thing. So it, it's good in, in that sense in that it's, it's, you know, information in, in a variety of mediums. And it's like now, now, my daughter reads books for fun, just like my wife, whereas Dan doesn't read, really. Mm. But his reading age is sky high because he can read and he plays board games with me. So he right. looks at the rule right. books with me and he goes through that and he reads the, the words on the cards and we play Magic the Gathering. And it's like you said, you're finding those words and he's like, what does this mean? How do you say that? And it has a big effect in that respect. And that's, I think that's quite educational. Um, but again, it's, it's, that's kind of uh, as a side effect. It's not, it's not planned. Mm. Or I've not planned it that way. Mm. I think we can't underestimate the value that 
socialization has through gaming as well. You know, I've just started a Dungeons and Dragons club at the college that I work at alongside one of the students. And um, without generalizing too much, sorts of uh, students who are coming along are the sorts of students you'd expect would come along to a Dungeons and Dragons club. <laughs> but okay. those students would generally not be the most um, vocal or interactive students, but get them around a table get those barriers down, get all the pretensions of modern life down. And they're just like smacking an orc as good as the person next to them. And that brings about discussion and it brings about interaction and those skills that we've, we've trumpeted for years and years and years of the benefits of, of role playing um, can really come to the fore for those people and, and give them the confidence to then take those skills out and, and use them outside of the table i think it has it has great benefits when it comes to helping people gain confidence and um gain those interactive skills i think it makes some of uh, societal conditions opaque as well in terms of we've got good friends who played a session quite recently and one of them's got uh, asperger's and another one's got massive anxiety issues and all the rest of it but until they said recently i hadn't realized because the only time i see them is when we're gaming so we get around a gaming table and just chat and share snacks and game and everything's group seems great but probably because i don't see them in day-to-day life in normal situations i haven't realized that they have what they consider to be something that hold back mentally in terms of a condition that they have it's notable that gaming seems to just be a complete leveler no matter what other thing you might have holding you back if you can get in a room with people of a reasonably like mind you can just chat away like you're all the same you know it's a level playing field across the board right yeah 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 exactly and I think it's quite telling as well the sort of the age that people get into gaming. Um, I don't know many people who got into gaming as adults. So I'm not saying I know every gamer, uh, but generally speaking, massive generalisation, I guess. Uh, I started gaming when I went to secondary school um, because there was a gaming club there. Essentially, that's it. If there hadn't been a gaming club there, I wouldn't have joined it and I wouldn't have found out how to game. And being a school child and gaming are really, really intrinsically put together in my memory anyway. Uh, maybe it was because we just seemed to have more time to do it. Um, you know, long summer holidays of games were, were just awesome, and I wish I could get those times back in. Oh, maybe I can. And, uh, you know, that that was quite a big deal. But, you know, the educational establishments are, are half lessons and half playtime. And in that playtime, everyone's pretending to do stuff. There's, like, role play going on in every playground. I don't know if that's true in business lectures, Neil. If they go out for like a smoke and a coffee, <laughs> I don't know if they're pretending to be elves in the corridors. Maybe they are. <laughs> Depends what you set them to do. But people can't help but like, you know, just socialise with each other. I think it's, I, I found it really interesting what Pete said about, um, you know, being excommunicated for playing D&D um, because it, it, where I work, it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of gaming students at the college and, you would be hard pressed to walk around a corner without finding some lads bent over a table playing magic every dinner time. It's just normal. Mm. It's just normal. People are very, very, very open now about being into gaming, be it tabletop gaming, board gaming, card gaming, computer gaming. And even the idea of, of you know, adults and teachers being into gaming is just normal now. It's just seen as something that happens and that everybody's quite interested in it, to be fair. I wonder if it's an age thing. Because I do secondary school and 
it's still, well, it's either not played very much at all, as in role playing, or those kids who do play are definitely fringe kids, you know, fringe of, of what we consider normality. I know that's a terrible term to use. But, you know, they, they are your stereotypical role playing kids. Mm. And I wonder whether it's, uh, it's to do with teenagers and the whole kind of growing up process. Because um, it's all right to play on your PlayStation, your Xbox. You don't get much grief for that. There are little pockets of kids who play Yu-Gi-Oh card game more than anything, from what I've seen. Maybe a bit of magic sometimes. And that is sort of all right. But there's probably, you can count on your hand, on one hand, how many kids have actually outed with a, a James handbook or a, you know, a player's handbook or something like that. You very rarely see that, or in my experience, I've very rarely seen that. And yet, kids are quite happy to talk about, and this is obviously going back a bit now, but quite happy to talk about what level their Blood Elf Paladin was at World of Warcraft uh, and which pets they've got. That was all fine. But if you were to do that, you know, around the table with D&D, you'd be like, oh, that's a bit weird. And it's still yeah. the case, I think, from my experience in secondary schools about that. And I don't know whether that is, I don't know why that is really. Because for me, those two aren't that different. You know, playing Skyrim and playing around a table at the weekend with everybody is pretty much, you know, like for like. I mean, it's not because playing around a table is better for me because it's, it's interactive and there's more of you there. But I can understand the attraction to things like Skyrim and World of Warcraft and all that because um, they're just good. But why those two are very different, and it's probably the same sort of kids. There's got to be some crossover of kids who do both. Maybe it's about just acceptability. Maybe it's about a willingness to break from the mould. You know, computer games are generally acceptable from a, a relatively young age. Um, this is something new. It's something different. It's a. It's a very. It, it's not necessarily a, a taboo sort of, but it's very different from what we would normally they would normally see and, and play and maybe it's just that it's it's having the confidence at a certain age to be able to have the identity that's separate from the, the herd and say no actually yeah i play D D." and in certainly that's things that you, i'm very confident about is being very upfront very early on with my students about just how deeply nerdy i am <laughs> to give them the confidence to say well so i am too you know, so the first, you know, in a couple of weeks' time, I start term, and the first thing, you know, I do is I, I give them a spiel about what I do and who I am. And inevitably, within about 10 minutes of the start of class, we're talking about which server you're playing on in World of Warcraft with at least four or five people in the lecture theatre, mm-hmm. just to say, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. You can be nerdy in my class. It's fine, because I'm nerdier than you are. I thought, because I've read this on the internet, therefore it must be true, that the millennials were all very proud geeks and that being nerdy was the new cool and like putting both straps on your backpack over your shoulders and like <laughs> doing your homework and being in formulas and maths and studying hard. So like, you know, when I grew up in the 70s and 80s, um, you, you'd get punched for being like that. And that's why you ended up being a role player, because no other, because you weren't going to be on the football team anytime soon. But I thought it was all the other way around, Pete. Is it not like that for teenagers these days? Are they not all studying and being maths geeks? Um, I think it's cool to be uh, individual and it's cool to be uh, geeky. And you can, you know, you get far into your geekiness, that's fine. But it, I'm, and this is probably a bad analogy. 
Um, it's probably a bit like kinkiness and sex. Because it's oh like, oh, it's all right to be a bit kinky, but if you go proper kinky, it's weird. Yeah, and I'm still thinking, I'm still thinking Dungeons and Dragons and stuff and evil role-playing is right at that kind of uh, tail butt plug kinky fetish thing. <laughs> it's, it's bad. I'm glad that a conversation about skill children with brother up. Right at the fringe. It's not it's not cool. It's cool to be geeky and it's cool to like geeky stuff and buy things from Forbidden Planet and all your Comic Cons and all that kind of thing. And it's good to like superheroes because Marvel movies have made that the case. Among other stuff as well. You know, it, it is and there's no doubt about it, kids are way more tolerant and way more understanding. On, on things, on issues that they they feel are kind of serious and important. So the whole sexuality, gender thing, equality, diversity, all that, kids are way better now. But you do still get that. You can go so far, and it's okay to be a bit out there and a bit weird, but if you go too far that way, people go, hang on a minute, you're a bit weird. And it's a, must, it's a fine line, and I don't really know what that line is. And I think possibly, from a, from a, a geekiness point of view, role-playing probably still the other side of that line. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe it's better than it was, probably. Mm. Although I'm not, I'm not that convinced when I say it out loud. I think it's there or thereabouts. I think it's quite close still. I think it seems to be more acceptable at kind of college level, like six form up. Yeah, definitely. It seems to be all right then. Which I think I brings think... you back to that age kind of thing. Because you get to sort of 17, 18 or whatever, and you've been playing World of Warcraft and that, and you, you're quite confident you know, relatively speaking, compared to where you were when you were 12, about what you're into and what you would, what you do, uh, and screw everybody else, that's what I do. So you don't mind saying it a bit more. Whereas when you're 12 and 13, I think you've got a lot less, a lot less confidence, a lot of mm. kids, and you're a lot more conscious about acceptance and fitting in. It's, I mean, to, to give a less career-destroying analogy... Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you think about music as as kids begin to you know discover music they discover chart music and mm. that's the music that they like and it's only when you get to a certain age generally let's say about 16 17 that your love of rod stewart or <laughs> take that or something like that comes out and some kids are actually willing to turn around and say no 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 i really like all that 80s indie stuff that my dad's been playing around the house since I was three. I like that. I do not like Cardi B. Thank you very much. There's a certain point where you can say that in your life. And there's a certain point where, no, you go with the herd. Yeah. It's safe in the herd. I think that might be it. I think, um, I think people are still, um, they're still brought into the hobby by other people. No matter how much we talk these days about live streaming, this, that, and the other. I think if you've got an inspirational person who wants to show you what role plays and you, you want to give it a go, then that can still be a really big thing. And, and that happened to me at school at the age of 11 when I joined a wargaming club, thinking that we would be uh, hitting each other with sticks and throwing grenades at each other and playing games that we used to play in the street called war. And it wasn't that at all. And in fact, it was funny shaped dice and rolling up paladins. And that was because there was a history teacher who'd gotten into D&D and wanted to, and he was probably forced to run a club like teachers are, you know, you, you will be doing a club 
so he's probably, you know, it's only now that I know that, that he would probably think, oh, God, at least let me do something at least I'm interested in. But out of that role-playing club, he would have had like, you know, 20 or 30 boys. They were all boys at the time. I think it would be different now. And uh, And some of those would have stuck with the hobby. Lots of them would have stuck with the hobby, I think. I don't think many people drop away permanently. And and they've gone on and formed their own gaming groups. And my experience of working in education is there are so many educators who are gamers. And I think that they, they got introduced in school and they, they eventually, they something slips, maybe the D20 rolls out of the gym bag or whatever it is, and they meet other others. And I think there might be loads of them out there. And those inspirational people will still be in a position where they can, you know, they can mold minds and you can't help but whenever you're asked to think of an analogy or think of a scenario, whatever, I think of pit traps and, you know, it just naturally comes to mind. Thing is, thing is, I'd, I'd put it the other way. The last the last meeting of the D&D club before Christmas, 20 mm. people in the room, 19 of them came to that room through critical role. Wow. So things have changed. 19. The one who didn't was me. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a different landscape. The only game they want to play is Mm D&D. And more power to them. You know, if that's what they want to play, then let's play. But they've come through that medium. That's where they've learnt what gaming is, why it's cool, why they like it, and why they want to have a go themselves. It's it's undeniable. I was a complete skeptic to that mm. moment. I was like, no, this is this isn't happening. This is a silliness. This <laughs> until I found out that I was like, right, you know, in the woolly wilds of Newcastle, where we've only just discovered the wheel, um, the fact that this internet show had such an impact, and it has made gaming cool enough that people are willing to come along on a you know May afternoon and play for two hours. We can't ignore it. It 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 is it is where we're going to get that influx of people. It is the future. You know, you were talking about millennials. Millennials are like one generation ago. Mm-hmm. Millennials are like 25, 30. Well, you know, it's the next generation of people with a different set of value. Even if I mean, from a professional point of view, all of that sort of demographic stuff's just rubbish anyway. But the next generation of people are doing things completely different. You know, they yeah. will look at, you know, it won't be board game cafes. It might be something completely different. And that's where their game is going to take them. And um, if we're going to, as teachers, influence them and, and you know, help develop them, then we have to where it's coming from. It was funny because I think it was GET was saying the other weekend when we saw him that he was trying to explain to someone what he's going to be doing the weekend, i.e. gaming. I, it was trying to like explain role playing, and as you do, you dance around it a little bit because you're trying to make it to make it sound shit or whatever. And the person who speaks to you, went, oh, do you mean like critical role? It was like, oh well, yeah, <laughs> exactly like that. And you know, this this other teacher didn't know what role playing was or anything like that, but they knew what critical role was because they watch it, and the, you know they've got friends who watch it and that kind of thing. So it's it's weird that it's it's kind of its own thing as well now that people will do critical role but not actually play D anD D, but they they like watching the stream stuff. You know, as a, like a, a spectator sport, almost. I'm gonna to have to watch this. I was unaware of it till G2 talked about it last week, or whenever it was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's odd. I think it's not because we're all season gamers, right? We've been gaming for 30, 40 years or whatever we have each, 
So, you know, there's like more of a, cent- a century of experience between us, going on for a century and a half between the four of us. Um, but we kind of like playing, and that's how we learned to do it. You know, I mean, we, we, man and boy with a flat caps on the cobbled streets with the D20s carved out of cobblestone. I don't think that's the case for a lot of people these days. They're more, they've consumed it because they're used to just watching YouTube, like your kids, Pete, for example, yeah. when you have to change your broadband because you realize that your kids were just on YouTube all the time and they were eating on your day trap. It's that kind of thing. But that's how they're used to consuming media or finding out about the world is you YouTube it. And we do. One of my mates at work put his central heating in recently and he just YouTubed how to change radiators because you can. That's what you do now, isn't it? Mm. So I think we've just we've got a whole new generation now where the first stop is go on Twitch and YouTube and then you do something else after that once you've researched it that way. So the bad news for us teachers is that everybody learns everything through YouTube these days and they don't need to come to classrooms anymore. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, imagine that- the... The, the biggest diss is going to be when they're um, when you're trying to tell a kid off for being on his phone. He's like, I'm learning how to do maths properly. <laughs> Watching somebody else do it. <laughs> we're going to have our own Twitch TV channel, Matt. Do you think so? Uh, yeah, we're going to make millions. <laughs> so, I mean, in the, um, in the curriculum at primary level, there's, there's, not, there's nothing there particularly that you would point out as being about games, although we use gaming to teach all the time, but I was wondering about higher up in the curriculum at secondary and beyond to like further education, et cetera. Is there anything that's snuck into the curriculum these days, maybe into media studies or something like that, that you might've bumped into where, where, where people are being taught about gaming as a thing that exists in the world. There's courses about computer game writing, computer game, you know what I mean? Um, Mm. But there's courses about that now, YouTube and, and internet and streaming and things like that. There's a lot more of that coming on in terms of utilising that and, and understanding it. So there must be links in that respect, I think. Yeah, there is. If you if you grab um, Pender Tomlinson at any con and bend his ear about it, he teaches computer games design. And a lot of the stuff that he talks about to us about it is not about computer games design, but about game design, wow. about understanding how games work and how the interactions work and how story works in game. And so I know he has his computer games design students playing role-playing games and board games and just any game that they can get their hands on so they understand the notion of game. It's fascinating. Get to, talk to him about it anytime you see him. It's, it's, it's well worth it. There's probably a course that people can try as well that one of my lecturers has, has recently put on Future Learn. I think you've got it. It sort of starts periodically, but you get it for about four weeks free if you get it in the right time. And it's about data science in the gaming industry, but it's worth it for all the videos he's got. It's, it's sort of best in Dundee, where the university is. And Dundee is like a hotbed of small computer games companies and startups and other, other things like that. And they interview a lot of people. They do stuff around uh, having streams of data to check how difficult levels are. And if you think a level level's too difficult, they'll like make it easier and things like that so that people don't start playing the game. And a lot of the the science behind how do you keep people playing a game and, and what do you do and what do you offer them to get them keep paying you money once they've started and all that kind of stuff. It'll um yeah, it's all really interesting. It's worth doing. I'll put a link in the show notes, but there's a lot of thought gone into it these days about the science of gaming or the, the or more importantly, people's behaviours towards games, so that then you can monetize that. Is the, the the evil bit at the end, but there's some interesting stuff around why people play and what makes them continue playing. I did a um, a MOOC a few years ago, one of these free online massive courses uh, from the University of Potsdam, which was the future of storytelling. 
Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating because it was talking about things like um, deconstructing TV stuff and learning how they work and then subverting that. Um, it was talking about transmedia and how um, people were telling stories through transmedia. And this was a few years ago. So it's quite possibly, you know, now up to date instead of just being in the future. But the idea of telling us, you know, if you look at what's it called, is it Invisible Sun? The Monty Cook game that has vectors for story coming left, right, and center from loads of different things, different areas. Um, you know, there's 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 ideas that you can take from that sort of idea of transmedia storytelling and promotion, and then build it into games and have different parts of story coming from different angles and different media. I know the current um, World of Warcraft expansion has tried that a lot. Short stories, there's cinematics within the game, there's um, these animated shorts as well. And then there's the game itself, and you play through and watch all of these and read these things, and you get the whole story from multiple angles. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we could easily bring into gaming. Cool. Okay, well, guys, conscious of time, and like all good lessons, everything needs a plenary at the end. So, so let's... See if we can uh, we can hit with one decent question at the end, which is: In experience as educator, does being a does working in education make you a better player or GM in role playing, or does role playing make you a better educator? Are the links there, or are they they they're only there as much as it would be to anybody who works in any job, whether you work in B and Q or a milkman or whatever? What do you think? Is uh, is education and gaming inextricably linked in your brain? Yeah, teaching smart kids is um, a social thing. And gaming for me has always been about being a social thing. Groups of people, managing groups of people, interacting with groups of people, whether it be small groups or big groups. And I think one sort of links together almost seamlessly. More so than other jobs, well, than a lot of other jobs. But I think anywhere where you're dealing with groups of people and not necessarily managing groups of people. I mean, actually talking to, interacting with on a a one-to-one group uh, kind of situation. I think that um, a job that does link to to gaming, I would think. Yeah, Yeah, I'd agree. I think also the planning side of it and the execution of the plan at the call phase when you're in front of a group of students or when you're in front of a group of players is, is so similar. Um, yeah. That the two the two sets of skills have to overlap. The ability to to change a plan on the fly, to change a game on the fly, to adapt to your to your audience in both ways. The skill there, and they're the same. I think I think it isn't that one makes the other better. I think that being good at one helps you be good at the other, and being you know, and vice versa, it becomes a virtuous circle. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would think so too. And and I, I catch myself using similar skill sets all the time. Sometimes I'm just doing some research for a game, especially if it's a historical game or something like that. And I'm hitting up websites and what have you. And, you know, that, that methodology that I'm using for that research is just smacks of exactly the same thing as to when I'm setting homework. And you just find yourself, unfortunately, living at 24 hours sometimes. Um, but yeah, the ability to be agile in front of a group of people who take you off the rails that you had carefully plotted, that's con GMing, right? 
And uh, and that's exactly what it's like when you're standing up in front of 30 kids who've just come in from PE and you're trying to get them excited about the Tudors. I think, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it, it stood me in good stead, definitely. And I, and I see the links massively. And that's before you get to the educational benefits, which have long been trumpeted about RPGs. But I don't know if anyone's done the research to see whether it, it happens or not, because it doesn't seem to be inserted into the curriculum that much just yet, despite the gamification that the rest of the world is going through. And it's probably you've seen it in business, too. Um, yeah, guys, there's bound to have been some of that in the computer world. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's tons of transferable skills, all the other problem solving and logic and all that kind of stuff for my IT technical stuff's there. But it's also things like present, presenting and things. So Scott, my colleague's on the same role as me, and he'll openly say I'm better at presenting than he is, and he's you know that's something he's top skilling. We've had effectively the same careers, give or take a year and all the rest of it. It's just that I'm used to standing in front of a bunch of people and presenting to, to, something to them. And like you say, when it comes to the Q&A at the end, I've got my notes are prepped, but if they ask something different, I've learned how to think on my feet a bit and how to give them something that they want, even if I can't answer the exact question or whatever else. So it doesn't phase me as much as perhaps it does him because he's just not used to having a bunch of intelligent people asking him searching questions and picking that thing that he'd never thought about. And go, well, what about this then? Mm. Um, Agility yeah. is a big thing, actually. Yeah. All right, listen, guys, uh, Pete, Neil, really appreciate you coming on tonight um, in the middle of school holidays. Uh, it's been it's been fabulous to have you on um, and to talk about your experiences in gaming and in your work as well. So thanks very much for that, guys. Hugely appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers, It's like having having reality stripped away from me. I know, man. I know. The magic is being stripped away.